Hello, welcome to EVN Report. My name is Maria Titizian, and joining me today from Las Vegas is Dr. Nerses Kopalian, the author of EVN Security Report. Welcome to the program, Nerses. Great to be here. Today, we will be speaking about the January security briefing, which you called Why the Aliyev Regime Prefers Warfare, uh, a Rationalist Modeling of War. As we have seen, Baku continues to obstruct the peace process. Uh, Yerevan is speaking in the language of peace uh, and continuing its policy of foreign and security diversification. Now, we've also seen Baku's relations with the U.S. and the EU continue to deteriorate. PACE, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, suspended Azerbaijan's credentials. The U.S. State Department placed Azerbaijan on the special watch list of its religious freedom designations. And there are many other examples, which I won't get into at the moment. But whoever has been following the news uh, knows that uh, this deterioration has been ongoing now for quite a while. And as Baku continued uh, strengthening relations instead with Moscow, Yerevan continued decoupling from Russia of course, uh, getting an appropriate, if you will, response from uh, the Kremlin. Now, developments, including Aliyev's ongoing rhetoric, constant demands for more concessions, indicate two growing trends, as you uh, point out in the briefing. Baku is claiming, uh, you know, since there's stagnation in the peace process and therefore is methodically uh, creating a pretext to launch what many of us fear could be an attack on sovereign uh, Armenia, Yerevan capitalizing on Azerbaijan's uh, obstructionist behavior is trying to convince the West of establishing some red lines against Baku. Now, in this context, you have written about the rationalist explanation of war to address the causal mechanism shaping Aliyev's incentives for being conflict prone. And we've talked about his uh, need for conflict persistence, if you will. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what you mean by not what you mean, but what the scholarship uh, deems the rationalist explanation of war. Of course. So this rationalist explanation of war has been one of the more uh, dominant and complex uh, explanatory uh, mechanisms and frameworks used to explain war. And it's part of sort of, you know, uh, we use game theory to understand this. We use risk-benefit analysis to, to understand this. Uh, and it basically tries to gauge uh, the objectives and the preferences of a leader when they're going to war. So the argument here is that uh, what Aliyev is doing is driven by a very acute rational process, that he's not crazy, that the decisions that he's making are actually very well calculated, and that uh, within that domain, preferring war is in his strategic interests. So I think this is very important to understand because in our discourse, when it comes to understanding security uh, with, the, uh, with, uh, with the Azerbaijan as an aggressive enemy force, uh, there's a lot of discourse that, you know, Aliyev is uh, revenge prone, that he's trying to make the Armenians suffer, and that speaking peace with someone who has that mindset makes peace impossible. All these things may be true, but... What, I'm, what the rationalist model of war explains is that his penchant for revenge, for example, does not overpower or supersede his rational calculations. The fact that he might come off as inconsistent or unnecessarily aggressive, that's not a, a testimony to his emotional or character weakness when it comes to passing decisions or making decisions, but rather these are rational calculations that he's making. So understanding his behavior through this lens allows us to better understand what his objectives are, what he's trying to seek, and more so develop policies or, or uh, 
sort of, you know, deterrent capacities accordingly. Uh, generally, the scholarship on this uh, has, you know, a, a multi, multi-tiered assessment on different causes of war, different rationalist explanations on uh, why the war is preferable when most consider war to be both risky and dangerous. And so to understand this, we uh, qualify this within two types of wars. There's what are known as unwanted or accidental wars, uh, such as, for example, like World War II or World War I, where World War I, nobody really wanted to go to war, but it escalated, escalated, and it basically exploded into something that uh, engulfed the world. Whereas sort of World War II, uh, which is the, uh, the other example of a wanted war, which is basically what uh, Hitler did, right? He wanted war. It was not accidental. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a wanted war. Um, so traditionally, the scholarship tries to observe uh, what rational explanations qualify for unwanted wars and what rational explanations qualify for wanted wars. For example, like neither uh, China or the United States want war, right? But there is a risk that things might get out of control. So unwanted or preventive war is part of this conversation. Or looking at the intense antagonism between the United States and Iran, Still, neither side wants war. And so the U.S., with all the capacities that it has, is being very careful not to fall into an escalatory trap, right? Therefore, it doesn't want an unwanted war. Aliyev is part of the uh, grouping for wanted wars. And so the rationalist model that explains leader preferences for wanted wars is quite distinct and unique. In this context, he prefers war as a rational calculation that suggests he will have more uh, benefits with respect to the risks. Therefore, whatever the costs may be associated with war, these are deemed to be beneficial for um, Aliyev. And in that context, uh, this is a preferable rational alternative to peace. And this is very interesting to understand and and qualify. Uh, For the Aliyev regime, they consider a negotiated settlement with Armenia to be either unpreferable or to be inconsistent with their interests. And so to qualify that, what he's going to do, is what his regime is going to do, is look at the expected utility of peace and the expected utility of war. And within this context, because the process is driven by attaining an expected utility, the process is fundamentally rational. And their ultimate conclusion here is that peace is within the domain of loss when it comes to expected utility, while war is in the domain of gain. And within this context, war is a rational, preferable outcome, whereas peace would be an irrational outcome for this regime. But why does he deem a peace in the domain of loss? That's a, right, because uh, as far as his uh, assessments go, right, as far as his calculations go, going to war with Armenia and being able to attain success or achieve maximalist outcomes are, are, are designed to produce a net positive, whereas peace would not produce a net positive and would keep things the way they are. This is kind of the logic, let's say, for example, um, Let's say you have a paid-off property that you rent out, okay? Uh, If you don't rent out that property for this month or next month, you don't have losses because the property is paid off and you're you're out of pocket. 
But as far as you're concerned, you rather have it rented to bring you that profit, right? Therefore, not renting it, you would qualify it in the domain of loss. You might not have negative loss because you're not moving, losing money out of your pocket, but what you could have gained, you have not gained because the house wasn't rented, right? Very simple analogy. So for Oliev, right, he has what he has achieved at this point. His assessment is if I can achieve more, and I don't do that, to me, maintaining things as they are, accepting peace is a loss because I have the ability to ascertain more. And if I refrain from ascertaining more and maintaining the current uh, uh, direction towards peace, that would I qualified it as a loss. So he operates off of the rational calculus of attaining more as opposed to keeping what he's attained so far. So you go on to provide the reader three causal explanations for this. And I, I would like to go through each of them individually uh, just so that it, we could um, you know, expand and try to understand them um, uh, a little bit uh, better because uh, as always, uh, your writing tends to be academic and dense, and and some of the examples that you brought now were uh, really good in trying to help us understand what you mean. So the first one is he's incentivized to misrepresent, not him, but the the theory to misrepresent information on relative capabilities, and Baku had done this regarding its own military capabilities for the last two, three decades. Could you uh, expand further on this first one, please? Right. So the, one of the um, general uh, causal explanations uh, through the rationalist modeling of war uh, for why a, a leader would, would prefer a wanted war, war as a preference, uh, is after they do sort of this you know, a risk, uh, a loss, uh, cost assessment, uh, they, they have made the, the decision that, for example, it is not certain if they want to go to war or not. And so uh, one important uh, explanatory factor here is information or access to information. Generally, leaders that have asymmetrical information and they sense that there is a disruption to power parity, clearly that tilts towards a preference for war. So in this context, um, when I, the example that I have in, in the security report for this month, right, we use the example of Azerbaijan having a lot more capability uh, prior to the 2020 war than we knew or that they spoke about. So there was, an, you know, the international community, all security experts, etc., that talked about this prior to the war, basically said that while Azerbaijan might have some minor qualitative advantage over Armenia because they been spending so much, generally speaking, the suicides are on to the teeth, they're fairly, relatively equal in capacity, so this would be a war of attrition because of the relative uh, parity in power. This proved to be completely false, right? There was a huge disparity in power. And so the asymmetrical information that Armenia had, that there's a power parity, was false, whereas Azerbaijan uh, tapped into and, and capitalized on that asymmetrical information to basically uh, camouflage or conceal this severe power disparity. And so when the war happened, right, Armenia's armed forces, to a large extent, even uh, neutral observers were caught off guard by the level and ability of, of Azerbaijan's uh, ca uh, military capabilities, which was disproportionate to the uh, information that both Armenia had and the uh, neutral observers had. Whereas Armenia's approach was the reverse, right? Armenia engaged more in sort of bombastic rhetoric, rhetoric where 
the conversation was where very armies very well dug in that attacking Armenia's defense positions would be extremely difficult that they have the Iskander missile systems and advanced weaponry from Russia that sufficient defense capabilities or uh, exist to deter Azerbaijan so this was all a complete and utter asymmetry in information and what this did is it reinforced the misunderstanding or the illusion of a power parity. When you are a rationalist leader and you're exposed to a situation like this, you're absolutely going to weaponize and tap into it. And so this is precisely what Aliyev did. And even after 2020, right, uh, we still don't know the full uh, capacity of Azerbaijan. Hypothetically, was Armenia overly weak and Azerbaijan not as strong. Therefore, the 2020 uh, outcome, the war, wasn't so much a reflection on Azerbaijani power, but Armenian weakness, hypothetically, right? And is Aliyev riding on that misperception to keep maximizing and demanding things because of this asymmetrical information? And as a rational actor, if he is in that domain, then he has no incentive to sit down and negotiate a peace with Armenia if he thinks that there's asymmetry of information which reinforces the asymmetry of power and therefore he could keep using kinetic diplomacy and or in more sort of common parlance the act of bullying to get what he wants so the first rational uh, causal explanation is how this asymmetry in, informa- in, 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 in information incentivizes the rational uh, leader to prefer war and, and the second causal explanation, which I must admit caused me to chuckle when I read it, uh, is uh, commitment problems. Uh, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, uh, this is, you know, uh, basically commitment problems has a two-tiered uh, assessment. One, uh, it's an issue of trust where neither side uh, trusts the other when it comes to negotiations or preferences uh, with respect to uh, militarized behavior. The second is, you know, does either side really want to commit to peace, right? Or are they going to commit to the uh, agreements that they sign on to? And so commitment problems have been utilized to explain, for example, example, the, the pre-2020 uh, uh, developments uh, for the for the last uh, 20, 25 years, where neither side was willing to commit to a compromise because one did not trust the other. And so in this context, commitment uh, has become, a, a commitment problem has been a, a severe explanatory, a problem and an explanatory factor for why the why Aliyev is behaving the way he's behaving, because he pretty much is getting anything that he's asking for uh, with respect to the a peace treaty, right? He's not getting everything because that would be unrealistic and he even knows it. So he's getting a deal that he's never going to get, right, from the lens of, uh, of negotiated settlement and sort of, you know, what the international community is uh, uh, is seeing and, and encouraging both sides to sign on to. So Armenia is basically taking a huge loss, making huge concessions, which historically would have been inconceivable, and Aliyev is getting that. Well, what, the fact that he's able to get that, yet he's still not agreeing to it, is a big question, right? Why? And the commitment problem or the commitment dilemma that is produced by the rationalist exploration of war allows us to understand this behavior of his. And so 
we have seen that there are a lot of empirically identifiable mechanisms that Armenia has offered. Mutual withdrawal of troops, international observer missions, demilitarized zones, all of these things have been presented to suggest that, no, you can't have trust, that there are no commitment issues from Armenia, and we can create empirically identifiable mechanisms to hold us accountable for any commitment concerns that you may have. So even after all this, right, why are you not willing to avoid the costs of war and mutually commit to a peace process? And the rationale, of course, is very straightforward. Aliyev has commitment problems. He does not want to commit to peace. So what he does, right, he uses what's known as the uh, spiral model argument. And he's basically saying, I don't trust Armenia five years from now, 10 years from now, because he might agree to peace, but once he gets stronger, I don't know what he's going to do. So Aliyev is projecting, he's he's basically arguing that Armenia is going to do what I did the last 15 years, okay? Got stronger, 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 and then I disrupted the status quo through the use of force, okay? So I have commitment problems, and he's convinced that Armenia has commitment problems. He's going to use that to justify his own commitment problems, right? And so uh, contextually, what the rationalist model says is that if a, if you have commitment problems, in the negotiation dynamics or in the engagement dynamics, this makes the probability of war much higher because one side isn't committing to, to peace or to a negotiated settlement, and this is incentivizing that side to further advance their interest through the use of war. And so preference for war becomes rational if you have a commitment problem. And, and the final one, um, and, and here I do want to delve into these uh, into his ongoing demands for concessions is issue indivisibilities. The more Armenia has mitigated the problem of issue indivisibility by compromising or agreeing, like you said, to very difficult concessions, the more Aliyev uh, has constructed new and artificial issues. And we've seen this on a loop for the last, uh, I know, since the end of the war. What do you mean by issue indivisibilities? So in, in the uh, scholarship, uh, the notion of issue indivisibilities basically uh, is an important causal uh, variable that explains, you know, why sometimes peace is nearly impossible. But that doesn't mean it can't be overcome. And issue indivisibility basically says that some issues, by their very natures, are simply not conducive to compromise. Uh, and therefore, if you have issue indivisibility, this makes war rational, right? So if you and I, right, cannot come to any reasonable solution on a given issue, that this issue in itself is indivisible, the probability of that issue being solved through a bargaining process, bargain settlement, is exponentially low. Therefore, the rational preference would be to address this issue through the use of force. Prior to 2022, we saw that issue indivisibility was the main problem, right? Uh, Baku said the status quo is not tenable and needs to be changed on my terms. And Armenia said the status quo is tenable, and if, if, if it's changed, it cannot be changed on your terms. There was no compromise on this issue. By its very nature, right, it was not negotiable. And so the outcome of 
of the war, the 2020 war for Aliyev was a very judicious and rational decision. His point was that I there's nothing to uh, engage here because the issue is indivisible. There's no compromise to this. Therefore, I'm going to solve it by force. And so th- that was the uh, a causal explanation from a rationalist perspective on 2020 in a narrow sense. Post-2020, right, Aliyev is now using the issue indivisibility uh, precept post-2020, as you said, to create new goalposts, right? So, for example, if he says, we have an issue here that's not compromisable, Armenia says, no, 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 there is, uh, right? There is a solvable issue. So Aliyev creates another one. He says, no, you see, this is not solvable. Armenia says, no, no, this one is also solvable. So then he says, okay, here's another one. And so, the, the, you know, you said, that, right, there's a, there's a process where he keeps, you know, going in this loop and this cycle of consistently manufacturing issues that could be deemed indivisible and therefore by their very nature unsolvable. The rational of that is he's going to utilize this concept of issue indivisibility and say, listen, I've been uh, negotiating with the Armenians three, four years uh, post-2020, and clearly they don't want to come to an agreement on anything. Therefore, I have no other alternative but to use think, uh, a force as a rational preference in solving these indivisible issues. Uh, in your concluding uh, paragraphs of this month's security briefing, you emphasize Armenia's 25 years of irrationalism and its policies and decision makings, uh, especially with regard to uh, its security uh, uh, needs and architecture. Um, you spoke about um, Armenia's sort of exaggerated, inflated, um, I don't want to say opinion of itself, but posturing in terms of its military capabilities. Are there other specific instances on, or decisions where Armenia's leadership exhibited irrational thinking and how this and how has this contributed to the current security situation in the region? Yeah, that that is that is extensive. I mean, ever since probably since 1997, when Armenia had the opportunity under the their, their Petrosian administration to sign uh, the best uh, uh, settlement that was offered to Armenia and would ever become close to being offered to Armenia, and we, uh, you know, certain internal forces reneged, and uh, you know, their Petrosian did not have the courage to go through with it. Uh, after that, which in of itself was an irrational decision. Just to, just to make sure from the rationalist thing, a, a school of thought, that Petrosian's resignation and refusal to go through was an irrational decision. But that's a different subject of conversation. Uh, since then, Armenia's posturing became enhancing the status quo, buying time, creating an over-reliance on Russia to preserve the status quo, and then maintaining it. That is an irrational posture because there was no end game. For that, that's point one from a from a rationalist assessment. If you don't have a, an end game, the risk benefit analysis becomes incoherent, and you're consistently in the domain of loss. This is why Armenia's posturing for the last twenty five years was deemed irrational. Second, when you saw that uh, your opponent is for 10, 15 years preparing for war, and they have exponentially increased their military expenditure, and that day and night it is very clear, even with the asymmetrical information, that they are preparing what they're preparing for, and you do not take countermeasures or counteracts to address that, you are engaging in irrational behavior. Now, you may, for example, say the international community might not allow the invasion or that our security compact with Russia is sufficient. Again, in the domain of uh, risk assessments, those are very, very high risk uh, um, 
postures that you're taking as solutions. So instead of having things that were basically like plan B, uh, we made, Armenia made those plan A uh, as far as their security architecture was concerned. And those, again, proved to be very, very irrational. So overarchingly, if you know that a power parity, a military balance, is what's keeping the status quo, rational uh, uh, modeling of war or conflict would say you need to preserve that balance of power. If you don't preserve that balance of power, you're engaging in irrational behavior because the outcome and the consequence is going to be a disruption of the status quo. So for 25 years, Armenia, whether it was in policymaking or in behavior or whatever, everything that they did failed to preserve the balance of power. More so, they remained indifferent to the disruption of the balance of power. This is a fundamental act of irrationalism. More so, when rationalist explanations were brought forth that asked for accountability or strategy in the face of of how a power disparity was being developed, the response was a political leadership was myth-making, right? That we won it the first time, we'll win it again, that Russia would not allow this to happen. They spoke in guarantees, even though Russians never gave those guarantees when it came to Nagorno-Karabakh, that, you know, you'll be drinking tea here and having coffee there, that the spirit of 2,000 years of warrior culture would suffice. These were non-rational responses, right? So Armenia's leadership created a full culture of optimism and chest banging uh, instead of engaging rationalist uh, uh, policy construction and an attempt to maintain the balance of power. And so once the balance of power is disrupted, restructuring that balance of power is going to take a long time, right? It took all the 15 years to build the capacity to to disrupt the balance of power. It's very likely going to take Armenia, maybe perhaps not that long, but at least uh, half that time. And so to answer that question, what is Armenia going to do now? They have to basically very incrementally, methodically, but at the same time in a very precarious security situation, take all the steps necessary to develop resiliency to somehow combat the disparity in the balance of power. Well, thank you for that very concise answer to that very impossible question that I asked to, to do in a matter of a few minutes. Nessus, as always, thank you um, for your insights and for delving a deeper into this new explanation, rational explanation of war for, for, for us and for our readers. And we look forward uh, to the next security briefing in a few weeks' time. So thank you. Thank you very much.